All right, and I'm joined here today with Andy Bianco, a great guitarist whose release we have coming out on our um, Next Level imprint. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Andy. Thank you so much, Alan. Appreciate you. Um, Man, so let's kind of get a little bit into you. I know, so you're based in the city now, up in New York City. Where are you you from? How did you kind of get into this uh, bag? Because it's always interesting for me, like how many guitarists start off as wanting to do jazz you know because i feel like that's an instrument right. there's so many other genres and so many other um music like so much other music that you're probably exposed to first you know what's the chance sure. that you heard a a, a django reinhardt track before you heard like thunderstruck or something you know so like how did this how did this happen for you totally that's a that's a that's a very interesting point um and actually yeah you're correct i i heard Jimi Hendrix. And Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and Kirk Hammett, uh, way before I heard uh, Django Reinhardt. Um, and Kurt Cobain is, as well. I definitely was exposed to Kurt Cobain long before I was exposed to uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel. Um, so, you know, strangely enough for me, I mean, my father was a professional musician for many years, a saxophonist, clarinetist. Um, and he played professionally in, in dance bands uh, from when he was a kid in the 1950s uh, up until when he was in his 40s. But he was also a, a high school English teacher and he taught music privately. So what happened essentially was, um, you know, he always liked to hang out at music stores and tool around with instruments, even after he was no longer a professional, uh, you know. And when I was, I want to say, you know, 11 or 12, he just started kind of buying a bunch of just guitars. He would buy um, different acoustic guitars and just, you know, learn to play them a little bit and they'd be around the house. Um, And that was just kind of a little hobby of him. You know, he would buy and trade them and he he always liked to hang out at music stores. So I started fooling around with him. And at the same time, um, you know, the, the sort of... It was kind of the beginning of the alternative uh, music movement in the early 90s and also the grunge, the Seattle movement. And, you know, pretty much a lot of my friends at the time were buying guitar and playing guitar. And prior to prior to that, the, the music that I listened to really, I mean, I, I listened to gangster rap. I mean, that was really some of the first exposure to music that I have. I mean, aside from... You know, my parents, my mother would play Pavarotti and different opera and stuff like that in the house. And my dad would play um, Basie, Count Basie on his, he would blast Count Basie on his uh, uh, A-track in the house. Um, And I studied a little bit of piano when I was young. But um, so my first experience with consuming music was buying cassettes. um, And I would, and I got into a, a gangster rap initially. And then around when I was 11 or 12, my dad, you know, as I said, he would have these guitars around the house. A lot of my friends were starting to play guitar and buying guitars. And I got into Metallica, got really into Metallica. And then also some other heavy metal bands like Slayer uh, and Sepultura. And and then around the same time, you know, Nirvana was getting, starting to come into the popular um, consciousness and getting big and a lot of other uh, alternative and, and grunge music. And a lot of my friends were, into this. Uh, so I was able to get a guitar when I was like 14, um, an electric guitar, a used Fender Stratocaster. And so I started getting the music that way. And I had this guitar class in my uh, junior high school where we were supposed to be learning 
you know, classical, little classical stuff, but all we would be doing is teaching each other, you know, Nirvana songs and Metallica songs and, uh, and just sort of generally misbehaving in the class, like, you know, preteen boys would do. Um, so that's how I got into it. And then my musical progression, as I kept learning the guitar, it, it really correlated with the music that I was listening to. So, you know, as I said, I started out kind of with gangster rap, and then I got into Metallica and heavy metal, and then I got to grunge and alternative rock. Then I started getting into classic rock when I was maybe 14, 15. And then I started getting into the blues. And so as I was, you know, getting into classic rock bands like Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and The Doors and Pink Floyd, uh, and Eric Clapton and The Cream and Santana, I, I would learn to sort of play along and to play those tunes. And then eventually I got into the blues, Stevie Ray and uh, Clapton and mainly, you know, Stevie Ray. And then you know, the Hendrix blues album was really influential. And, and then I started to get into more jam bandy stuff when I was a little older, like the Almond Brothers and the Grateful Dead. And I remember at one point right, right, right. when I was maybe, I want to say maybe 15, 16, it was in the summertime. And my dad had picked up, strangely enough, this Bill Mays trio record uh, CD, actually. And he had it in the living room and I grabbed it and I brought it up to my bedroom and I was playing along, trying to play along to it. And I couldn't hear my way through what was going on. And I was like, okay, this is weird. I don't understand it. I can't hear my way through it. Uh, so that kind of, and that, you know, he was playing jazz and I couldn't, I couldn't, this is one of the first things where I couldn't play along because I'm like, oh, well, I can play along to pretty much everything else. I couldn't play along to this. So that kind of um, encouraged me to start pursuing jazz more. And I had been studying with a, a teacher up until that point who was uh, a very good uh, teacher named uh, Frank Daniel, a place called Lawrence Music in a suburb of uh, Pittsburgh called Castle Shannon. And, you know, he taught me a lot of Zeppelin stuff. He taught me major seventh chords, taught me pentatonic things, uh, pentatonic scales and stuff. And so I would learn a lot of songs with him. But then I switched over uh, to study with a teacher named Tim Bowerly at a place called, uh, I think it was called, well, Hollywood Music, I remember. I, I forget the first place where I studied with him, but a place called Hollywood Music in the McKees Rocks part of Pittsburgh. Uh, so Tim Bowerly was my teacher, and he really got me into jazz, got me into checking out modes. Um, and so I started getting into jazz then when I was around 15 or 16. And, and that's when I checked out, you know, Charlie Christian, Charlie Parker, Django Reinhardt, Pat Martino, Wes Montgomery. Those were incredibly eye-opening experiences for me, especially, you know, hearing Charlie Christian, Django Reinhardt, Charlie Parker, and Wes. I was just blown away by that. Um, so yes. So to, to have this, uh, see, again, it's really interesting because, so I play trumpet, right? Oh, cool. For everyone's, um, music that you check out, Mm -hmm. obviously influences your, your compositions, your playing in some way, um, whether or not it's direct, you know, like the fact that I like to listen to common, um, has some way worked itself into my, uh, writing. Awesome. So with you as as a guitar um do you find that these uh influences like a Jimi hendrix like an eric clapton like you know maybe even john mayer some something that's not you know straight ahead or whatever are they a little bit more direct in your in your playing and in your writing because it's you know it's still guitar compared to guitar whereas like you know for trumpet there or, or sax or whatnot there's so few of that outside of you know the more 
classical or jazz or or Latin genres that you're already working inside of. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a really good question. Um, I mean, I would say absolutely, especially, and it's funny because, you know, the the first really kind of powerful, compelling music movement that I think I was a part of growing up was the Seattle um, grunge movement, you know, with bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and uh, Soundgarden, especially in um, Alice in Chains, especially. And, you know, the sound of those, I remember watching all those music videos on MTV and just, you know, the sound of those albums. And also, you know, with uh, specifically dealing with Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, their usage of odd meters and their usage of um, just more kind of interesting harmony and and their usage of detuning stuff, which would create a lot of different sonorities and different types of sounds. That is very much influenced my odd meter writing today. Um, I, you know, maybe even more or to, to the same extent or more than, you know, checking out ECM records that have that, you know, with Peter Erskine or you know, John Abercrombie, Gary Burton, Pat Martini. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that Seattle sound and just the way that it was such a, I felt like it was such a break from, you know, the kind of hairband sort of Motley Crue, um, Guns N' Roses sort of, you know, late 80s sound. And now you had this, something that was heavily influenced by classic rock you know, bands like Led Zeppelin and, and definitely Zeppelin with its odd meter stuff influenced my odd meter writing. Um, and I think guitar players, especially Hendrix, Hendrix is playing really influenced my, um, my avant-garde playing, like with my, uh, the record I did with Bob Moses, we recorded way back in 2005. I mean, the Hendrix approach, and I, and I think of Hendrix very much, you know, is, is kind of like an avant-garde or, or free jazz player among other, uh, types of guitar players. I mean, he's, he's definitely such an icon, but, um, his playing definitely influenced my avant-garde playing. And when I work with different artists, like the, the Grammy winning artist, Al Varner, who I work with, it's it's weird because there are places that I will go in that band accompanying an artist, which are the same type of places that I would go playing free jazz with Bob Moses. It's like once you sort of become familiar with a certain place, you can access it. And, and I like to try to do that. I mean, I, I like to try to play like how I play and go to the places that I go, no matter who I'm playing with. And it's, it's, it's strangely satisfying to find out that I can access the same sort of place that I access with you know, Bob Moses and playing completely avant-garde free jazz noise rock almost. And I can do that underneath, uh, you know, an R and B vocalist or in a more popular new setting and it works. Um, and I really like that. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how a lot of these other influences kind of impact you. Um, you know, definitely the, the energy from a lot of the classic rock and grunge and heavy metal and the intensity from that is really prevalent in my playing, even when I'm playing jazz or straight ahead or, or fusion. So it's wild how all that stuff kind of comes together um, and it influences the writing. And, and that's what I think is so great about, you know, hearing modern players all have, um, you know, modern jazz players. It's like you'll hear influences such as Radiohead and also, you know, Teddy Wilson or Woody Shaw you know, Tom Harrell and then, you know, Soundgarden, all that stuff that's in there or bands like Massive Attack and Portishead, um, you know, those influences are, 
have influenced my writing as well. And I think that's one of the great things about jazz because you, you, you have that. It's like, you can really, you know, you have these great, these artists producing these amalgamations of, of this music. That's just so all over the place in terms of genre. And then they come up with something unique and special. So how do you take, you know, all of that experience and, and, wide variety which i i completely agree with you it's very interesting seeing like where um modern music in general is just going to because there's so much more with with the internet and youtube and spotify that you're uh influenced by on like a worldly approach and you know you're hearing all these influences all over the world um and then you decide to release this album that's upcoming called uh nyc stories so how does that relate there how do you you know because some people describe um New York as uh, a very big mixing pot, which of course it is. You know, you have so many people in such a small area. But where, how does Andy Bianco fit into that? You know, like what is what what is your 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 goal here with that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because prior to when I moved to New York, I was really just interested in becoming. I mean, just a jazz guitar player. Like I didn't. Re- I wanted to just sort of focus on that. I didn't. I wasn't so interested in playing other types of music. Then when I got to New York and I saw the, you know, the need for versatility, and also I saw the fact that there were so many opportunities there, um, you know, I became open to playing more stuff. Like I played in a bunch of little indie rock bands, and um, you know, I would play R and B stuff. I wanted to be, you know, to do the R and B thing to work with an R and B artist, which I do now, and and I just I was like, well, you know, the opportunities that come with that are cool. The opportunities to tour and to travel. Uh, you know, I'm interested in those. I mean, I think it would be great at the time was it could be great to go to do a tour in Japan or around the, you know, the States or, uh, and play on TV shows, which I've done with the R and B artists, which is, which I thought was really cool. So it kind of opened me more up to that, um, just the opportunities. And then I sort of, yeah, I came back around to focusing. I sort of took stock of where I was at and what I thought I did well and what networks and what scenes I was sort of in. And it just came back to, you know, because I had been doing a little bit of pop production and also electronica stuff, which I think is a really, you know, drum and bass and, and electronica stuff. I think those are really interesting genres and fun to uh, take advantage of all of the AI possibilities and the digital and the computer options that are available uh, with, with modern technology. But then I, I sort of just came back when I was kind of assessing where I was at. And I'm like, well, my net, the largest network that I'm a part of is the jazz network. I mean, the, the places that I hang out most are places like Smalls and Smoke and the Zinc Bar and the, the West Village Jazz Pub uh, scene. And, and I had a residency with a jazz hip hop band up at Smoke Jazz Club for several years. Um, so I, I just knew all these cats that were in the jazz scene as opposed to the you know, I knew some people in the R&B scene and the church scene from playing with Al Varner and uh, working in, in bands uh, with music directors like Henri Gill and, and Ray Chu, some of the cats up on the Apollo scene, but not a whole lot. Um, I knew some people in the Broadway pop rock scene from um, performing in this sort of avant-garde Cirque du Soleil show called Empire, where I did a, a, a four-month tour in New Zealand and Japan. But in large part, most of my network and also most of the what I liked to do most and had the most experience with was in the jazz scene. So at the time I decided, okay, well, I want to kind of pursue my stuff more. Um, that was the way to go. Also, I mean, I, I've had the most success just licensing and, and generating revenue from my own jazz compositions. It's easier for me to do. 
my overhead costs are lower and I like it more. And so, so that's when I kind of refocus after coming to New York and checking out a whole bunch of stuff and playing a whole bunch of different types of music, I came sort of full circle and I was like, okay, well, I want to play jazz and I want to try my best shot at being a jazz artist in this town and, and, and just doing the most that I can about it. And so I would started writing new stuff. Um, that was a reflection of my experiences touring abroad while I was in New York and then also in New York. And, and I also, I mean, there was a utility out of a lot of, with this current record, um, the compositions, they're, they're less, you make an argument that they're less intricate than on some of my previous albums. And a lot of that is out of the necessity of, I want to have charts and tunes that I can uh, play with the people that I want to play with if they're not able to rehearse, that they can read them down or they can learn them quickly because I know everybody's busy, but you know, I kind of want the people that I want to play on them. So, so in large part, it's, it's really just a documentation of writing um, that I've, that I've been doing. And it, I mean, it started as a documentation of my working bands around New York city for the past several years. S some stuff I wrote when I was on tour. Um, but a lot of the newer stuff, uh, was written for the album concept, which gradually, which sort of just took shape and kind of revealed itself to me as being something more than just a document. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to express and kind of draw interest to a lot of, you know, things that I talk about, uh, involving my record about things that are kind of left, uh, unaddressed, you know, just sort of the struggle and the challenges of trying to be a musician in New York city and trying to be a jazz artist in New York city. Um, and, and just sort of the lifestyle and how, you know, it still kind of can take people out. Um, you know, the demons that musicians and I see people that I know and who have succumbed to, uh, the demons of you know drugs and alcohol, alcohol and opioids and, um, things like that. And I mean, I wanted to kind of express that and, sort of this overall kind of crisis of meaning in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of that is sort of, uh, my, my writing is imbued with that, especially for those who battle demons, which I think is the most poignant track. I mean, that's literally, it's a song for those who battle demons and it's about that. And it's a, it's a method, a message of encouragement to those who battle demons to keep striving. And the whole idea of NYC stories is it's, it's stories about being in NYC but it's also, you know, the sort of the idea with the album cover and the buildings, um, you know, it's it's also um, is analogous to the consecutive levels in a bit uh, in a skyscraper as they rise higher to the sky. Um, the higher you the higher you get, things get more complicated. But um, it's a method. It's a message uh, of encouragement to keep striving in spite of the demons that we battle to keep fighting um, and to, and to just keep being challenged. And, and I think that way we're really manifesting our best selves in the world. And that's our best chance uh, at changing the world for the good as artists. So how long have you been in New York? I have been in New York for uh, just over eight years. Okay. Okay. So when you um, talk to younger musicians who want to go into let's yep. just say jazz, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, do you still advise them that New York's the, the scene you should go to? Do you think they need to move to it? And like, that is the best fostering situation for them. They need to, to visit it. Like, 
what in what way do you see New York fits a role now in in the um, young musician's life? Uh, because I think we, there's now a lot more um, opinions on that, you know, because it's not like what it once was by Absolutely. any means, you know, which is you could argue is a bad or a good thing. Um, and, you know, with the Internet and social media and Spotify and YouTube with all the negative aspects it has, it does have the benefits, too, of someone now that lives in, you know, Idaho can get the right. music out there. So what are your thoughts there on uh, on how New York plays a role? Well, I mean, that's that's a tough one. I mean, yeah, absolutely New York is not what it used to be. Uh, but the music business and the industry in general is not at all what it used to be. Um, I mean, I don't even really think of the music business as sort of a business at all. I think it's it's basically been completely annihilated um, by many factors. And that, you know, that's possibly a topic for a whole other conversation. But I'm sure many of your listeners, as well as as well as you and, and others in this field are aware of, of these sort of things. <clears throat> New York specifically, um, and, and I've been hearing this from older players who've been here for a long time. I mean, you know, for one, the market is completely oversaturated with talent. So the supply of available talent, uh, it, it just greatly exceeds the demand for, um, for, for it. So, that's just one factor. I mean, there's many other factors um, involving technology, involving alternative sources of entertainment. Um, whereas, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, every bar that you went out to, it had a band because you didn't have karaoke, you didn't have satellite radio, you didn't have DJs so much. Um, so, I mean, there's all sorts of things regarding that. But specifically with New York, I do think that, I mean, my when I came here, I did not have a really clear plan of what I wanted to do for better or for worse. And I couldn't decide what it was. I, I didn't, I didn't know. I just knew that I had to get there. Um, so as soon as, I mean, I, I, uh, out of school, I mean, there's some certain things that I wanted to do. I led jazz trios for a while on, on, um, carnival cruise ships and, and celebrity. And I also played in a jazz quartet on the celebrity cruise ship. And that really helped me hone my chops, hone my straight ahead playing. Um, it helped hone my trio playing and it also made me a seasoned professional and it gave me the confidence to go to New York, you know? Um, so that really prepared me for it. And it also, you know, prepared me to, to, to know what, what is BS and what is not and, and those sort of things. So I just went to New York and, and just sort of immersed myself in it. And, um, and then I came to where I'm at now, but, um, the opportunities that are here, you can't, I don't think you can get anywhere else for sure. So there's definitely opportunities here to really, you know, take your music or your artistry to levels that one could never even dream of, of realizing. I never thought of myself as getting to play on Good Morning America, accompanying a Grammy winning artist. I, I did that. I was like, okay, well, that's a cool thing to do, you know, whatever I think. So you have that in New York. You, you can't really get that. If you're not in a center like New York or Nashville or LA, I mean, it's just a lot harder to do to break into the network. Now that's changing because of technology, sure. So, I mean, and I have advised younger players and even contemporaries of mine that have delayed coming to New York and who have sort of developed into kind of big fish in, in their own small ponds, whatever city they're in, and they're doing well. Um, so my advice generally is, no, do not come to New York because especially if you're already 
sort of establish where you are because it's there's going to be a long pain process, I think, that you're going to have to go through before anything really happens. Um, and the market is so saturated. There's just not that many gigs. I don't even really know if there's a scene anymore. It, it's just it, it's just really difficult. And there's very few teaching gigs. Uh, it's very difficult to make money. Um, and it's getting more and more expensive. Um, unless you're someone that just feels like me that you kind of have to do it. Uh, and you have to follow that path and you got to follow your heart and just do it. Um, but you know, it'll take, I mean, you'll be sacrificing a lot. I mean, I mean, people have been telling me older musicians, my father, you know, friends, colleagues, uh, you know, when I was young and, and coming up, like, don't go to, don't be a musician. Don't do it. There's no work. But I also had a lot of people say, well, you got to move to New York. That's what everybody did. You got to go there. I think that that's an outdated sort of paradigm. And I think that everything is getting disrupted um, mainly because of, I think that the biggest factor that humanity is dealing with is the interaction with AI and the human experience. And I think that that's just this colossal disruptor and it's gradually causing a paradigm shift that will be, you know, historians will look back at this and say, this was the biggest paradigm shift that happened since the invention of fire. And, and maybe even more, but so, you know, you, you're just feeling that in, in the music industry as well. Um, so I think it's really important to, to take a, a good look at things and see what's going on. I, I don't think I would advise people uh, to move to New York necessarily. I mean, it, I mean, it would depend. I mean, there's definitely, yes, there's great opportunities here. If you want, I remember hearing Kurt Rosenickel say like, if you want to really see the level, um, of you know players i mean this is the world level new york city so if you want to go there and see the level and just test your metal and see how you stand up it's a great place for that and i remember rosenwinkel saying that he's exactly right um it's a great place for opportunities maybe it's a great place to sort of make a little bit of a name for yourself but i mean the the business is just not like it used to be it's 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 really I mean, it's, I, I kind of think it's really dead, especially, I hate to say it, but I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to BS here. And I know a lot of people that say that and a lot of older players, a lot of veterans say the same thing too. So, so what's, so what's the solution? So the solution is, is, is to be adaptable enough to be able to be resilient against whatever disruption happens um, and to take responsibility for whatever suffering you incur based on your own decisions. Um, but yeah, New York is, it's definitely not like it used to be at all for sure. Well, man, that's, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. It's, you know, I'm, this is coming from someone that's never, uh, been to New York, you know, sure. it's just, it's, it's, it's realizing it's something that I certainly, uh, I think I, I mimic your feelings that I feel like I should visit, you know, maybe spend some time there, you, you know, gain the experience and some of the opportunities that, uh, the musicians there can offer, you know, work with people and whatnot, but I think we're certainly in a stage now where it's not as much of a uh, necessity, you know, especially with scenes like Atlanta and Chicago and, and Nashville, yeah. LA, Kansas city. Yeah, or even Branson, away. Missouri too, especially, uh, you know, like if you're, if, if you're into the show scene and you're a horn player, right. I mean, like I've heard a lot of good things about that, you know? Right. right. And it's, it's in places, you know, it is popping a more, more Austin, yep. Texas, you know, new Orleans, like let's not sure, forget new exactly. Orleans. Um, so, um, man, well, thank you so much to come on. It's, it's, it's very interesting to hear people's thoughts, uh, 
and and hear them them talk and whatnot before and after and during your listening then to their uh to their music you know helps provides uh another sense of uh perspective if if you will you know you'll be able to check out andy's new release coming out on february 7th of 2020 which is kind of nuts to think about we're already looking at uh 2020 releases um and uh hope you guys all enjoy it'll be on you know amazon spotify apple music youtube and and uh, all that stuff and thanks again andy 